Well, good morning, Fellowship Greenville. I'm Jim, and I am one of the pastors here. Thank you so, so much for being here to worship Jesus with us today. Hey, thanks, guys. Hey, I expect a little more Auditorium One, please. Thank you very much. Uh, like we just said and sang, <laughs> uh, we do hope that your hearts are uh, spilling with gratitude this morning. If you're here and you're visiting with us, we're so glad to have you. Um, please stop by our Welcome Center out in the Commons over near Auditorium One. If you have any questions about life here at Fellowship, we have a team there ready to serve you and help you in any way that they can. And Fellowship family, if you have any questions about specifics uh, of getting further involved or details about community group stuff or clarity about the upcoming holiday schedule, you can go bother your friends out at Next Steps in the Commons. They have all the answers to every question you've ever had in your entire life. Merry Christmas. Uh, also, Auditorium 2, just for you, we have a, a Welcome Center Next Steps combo no onions table right back here in the corner, and we have somebody back there that would love to talk with you after service as well. Um, Today, yes, like Jason just said, we are celebrating what God is doing in and through us as we look to the future, but we are also going to celebrate by looking back, all the way back to the most definitive act of generosity our world has ever seen, God giving us the gift of himself in Jesus. And I do, I know for some of you, <coughs> for a few of you, uh, Labor Day, I swear you're like, Labor Day was three weeks ago, it cannot be Christmas yet, but it is upon us. Um, and so for the next month or so, like Jason said, we are doing an Advent sermon series that we're calling The Word Made Flesh. And I, I also know there are planners among you and you're like looking at the Sundays, you're like 3, 10, 17, 24. Christmas Eve is on a Sunday, Jim. What are we gonna do about that? You know what? We're here for you. <clears throat> Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna have services at 1 p.m., 3 p.m., and 5 p.m. because we do want to celebrate together but also give you some margin to celebrate with your family. Uh, but we'll be, we'll be keeping all those details in front of you in the coming weeks. But our series, <clears throat> The Word Made Flesh, this phrase is borrowed popularly from John's gospel. And this idea of the incarnation, of God becoming human, it simply can't be reduced and restricted to one sermon at the end of the year. There is something here in the incarnation of Jesus, in his advent and in his arrival, there's something here that is supposed to draw us deep into worship and also move us forward into a special way to live. So we're excited to explore this over the next month of Sundays. And today we will kick off this uh, series in John chapter one. If you'd like to go ahead and get there in your Bibles, that would be good, great, wonderful, awesome, thank you. John chapter one is where we will be and I promise we will get there in a few minutes. John chapter one. John chapter one. <coughs> <clears throat> um, <clears throat> as you're finding your way there, I'm gonna let you in on a little secret. And this is a secret that pastors and doctors and therapists all kind of share together a little bit. Goes a little something like this. If you walk into our office to talk about a thing, okay, you come up in there and you wanna talk about a problem or a vice or a sin or a habit or some parasitic pattern that won't leave you alone, Here's the secret. The secret is that we know you're not gonna tell us the whole thing the first time, okay? I know some of you are like, what? Okay, now, I also know that some of you like have a guilty conscience and you're just gonna come in and unload the first time, but it doesn't happen every time, but it happens enough that it's somewhat of like a professional meme, if you will, for pastors, doctors, therapists, et cetera. This is how it goes. You walk in and you say, hey man, I, 
I can't, I can't stop smoking. I just can't stop smoking. I know it's not good for me. <clears throat> I'm cutting back, but I just can't quit. And then you're asked, well, what are you, like, what are you down to? Like, how many cigarettes a day are we talking about here? And you go, I'm, I'm down to like five or six cigarettes a day. And the thought that at least crosses the mind of the pastor, doctor, therapist in front of you is, pack a day, okay, good, good, <laughs> right? Or if you're like, no, 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 I, I, I'm really doing well, I'm only down to just like two, two drinks a night. Their thought, at least it crosses their mind, is two bottles of wine, and that's what happens, that's what they think. Now, obviously it's a little tongue and cheekish here, and a lot of us do have a thing, <clears throat> and I don't know what your thing is, it could be, gambling or lying or shopping or porn or pills or anger, gossip, eating disorders, control issues, or just the fact that your phone is basically glued to your hand. But whatever it is, the first time you sit with somebody to talk about the thing, you only usually let a little bit leak out. You don't walk into an office and just break the whole dam. You don't do that. Now, to analyze why this is the case could be a very textured and interesting conversation to have. However, I think central in that conversation has to be the fact that we all yearn to be truly and deeply and actually known. We ache for it. But most of us, on the first pass, we're gonna put a little governor on the thing, right? Like, yes, we wanna be known, but only to a certain point. And yes, we get it, like all of that stuff. Vulnerability can be tough, but full vulnerability, that's just stupid. That's crazy. That would get way too ugly because I've got way too much shame I'm carrying to do something like that. After all, this is your first time sitting down with, with pastor, doctor, therapist, person. Now, if you are a follower of Jesus, you may know that the Bible teaches that Jesus is our great high priest that he knows and understands and he empathizes with us. And the sad thing is, I do think a lot of Christians know that. They, they go, oh, we sang that in a song or I remember a pastor talked about it one time. But I don't think a lot of Christians know how that thing works, that Jesus is our high priest. Like they don't know why and how he understands and empathizes. Like, like if you walked into Jesus's office and you sat across from Jesus, somehow you would feel like this vulnerability like leap out of your soul and you would just launch it, and you would tell him everything with no governor on it, right? But at the same time, you wouldn't be scared because you'd also have this strange confidence in his love for you, and you would want to change because of it. Like you would sense this unique power as you sat across from him, and you'd kind of be like, he gets it. Like, he, he gets it. But my question is this, why is that the case and how? How can his love feel so powerful and so personal to all of us, to so many people? Like especially when we all have so, so many different issues. Um, you know, there are caves and catacombs and ruins <clears throat> surrounding the Mediterranean world, especially around Jerusalem, where images of Jesus are depicted differently and many of these are over 1,000 and even over 1,500 years old. There are drawings of him that picture him as from the east that maybe make him look more <clears throat> Asian or perhaps Indian. And then there are those that make him look like he's from Italy or Spain. And you can Google image search all these things. There are cartoonish kind of etchings of Jesus as him being from the Middle East. And of course, these are the most historically accurate. <clears throat> and I promise this is going somewhere. But Jim Thompson, fun fact for the day. Uh, in college, I played in a black gospel band 
Yes, that's very funny. I, I'm a mega white boy, and at the time it was only punk rock. And so our band definitely suffered from being a little too Caucasian. However, it did help me fall in love with wonderful artists like Kirk Franklin and Fred Hammond and John P. Keat. And we played at John P. Keat's church in Charlotte one time. And afterwards, we stopped by the gas station across the street from the church. And right when I walked into this gas station, they had this little turnstile of Bibles there. <clears throat> and on one of the kids' Bible, there was a cartoon picture of Jesus on the cover. And it was a black Jesus. And I'll never forget pausing and having this like lovely little theological moment just standing right there. And this reinforces the entire question. How can Jesus be so personal to so many of us? Like with catacombs and gas stations in view, we know that this is a question that has danced through the cultures and corridors of history, and so we can actually add to it. How can Jesus be so personal to so many people and do it for so long, right? It does not matter. Hey, it doesn't matter your, like your problem or your vice or your sin. It doesn't matter your race or your culture or your class. I still want to know how, how does he do it? How does he truly and deeply and personally know so many with so many differences? Now, if you're thinking, you're like, oh, he's God. Uh, maybe. I think it's because he's God become man. The answer to this is tucked in the incarnation. And this demands our attention. So our simplified question for today is this. What makes the incarnation of Jesus so powerful and so personal? What makes the incarnation of Jesus so powerful and so personal? Like no matter what your thing is and no matter how honest you are about it and no matter your background or your story, the wild claim of Christmas is that when God came to us in Jesus, he came to simultaneously know us and love us. And that combo should just leave us baffled. And so that's why we're digging in and asking it this way. What makes the incarnation of Jesus so powerful and personal? And today, John 1, 1 through 18 will help us answer our question. That is our passage for this morning. John chapter 1 verses 1 through 18. And to corporately confess our gratitude for God's word, <clears throat> after I read it straight through, I'll do my line, which is, uh, this is the word of God for the people of God, and then you get to do uh, your line together out loud, which is thanks be to God, and it's Thanksgiving weekend, so you better make it a good one. Uh, so here we go, John chapter 1, <clears throat> starting in verse 1. Here we go. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came into his own, and his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, 
not of the will of the flesh nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, John, he bore witness about him and cried out, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, yet he has made him known. This is the word of God for the people of God. God. Amen. Now, in the weirdest way imaginable, this is John's Christmas story, Happy Holidays. You're welcome, love John, okay? We have four biographies of Jesus in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Matthew's account is very, very Jewish, and so Jesus' birth is about the fulfillment of what the Old Testament prophets looked forward to. Mark's portrait of Jesus is that he is the ultimate servant that Isaiah was looking for, and so a servant's origin story doesn't really matter that much, and so Mark doesn't have a birth narrative. He's, he's Scrooge of the lot. And, and Luke's account was for all peoples, all Gentiles, to show how Jesus was the perfect human. And so he has the most elaborate Christmas story with a census and cousins and shepherds and kings and angels. And even Luke takes Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Adam. <clears throat> but John, John here, he is making sure that all his readers know exactly who Jesus is. He is God in the flesh. So what does John do? His quote-unquote Christmas story starts all the way back in eternity past. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Happy holidays. That's John. That's what he's doing here. And this 18-verse prologue of John is like an infinitely drenched washcloth. You can twist it and wring it as dry as you can and then unfold it to find it just as drenched as before. There is so, so, so much here. But for our purposes this morning... John's initial picture of heaven coming to earth in Jesus is both bewildering and intimate. It is teeming with power and beauty, and that's why we're trying to pick at today. That's what we're trying to pick at today with our question about what makes it so powerful and so personal. And to answer this question, we're going to explore two main ideas in this passage. Two main ideas. The first one is the darkness and light. Imagery and it will help explain the power of the incarnation. So let's ramp up into it. Let's look at verse one one more time because it's fun. Uh, In the beginning was the Word. We know this is a statement about Jesus of Nazareth. We also know that this is a creation echo from the very first page of the Bible. And look at the Word. Look at it. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So this Jesus somehow is in eternal perfect relationship with God, and somehow at the same time, is gloriously and completely God himself. Really, really fun, right? Now, John's full doctrine of the Trinity in chapters 14 and 17, etc. you can get to that later. But look at what else is said about this word in verse four. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. So in this word, there is something that does some kind of illuminating or revealing. 
Like Jesus, the word light, discloses things. And when he acts, he, he makes things known. He makes things clearly seen. <clears throat> Verse five, check it, look. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, <clears throat> forgive me, I need to geek out for a second. The translations here are a massive bag of fun. Some say the darkness can't extinguish it, which is like a full fire metaphor, which is interesting. That's not the word totally. Some say the darkness can't overpower it or comprehend it. It's a wonderful word in the original language. It's the Greek katalambano, which I know that you all know. The word means to like grab a hold of <clears throat> or grasp or lay a hold of. Now think about it. This wonderful little word here, katalambano, <clears throat> is trying to talk about the abstract relationship between darkness and light, which is no small task. So let me help with a little illustration here. <clears throat> a few years ago, <clears throat> Sarah and I got to visit this beautiful home that had a room where three sides of the room were walls, and there was an outside door going out, but each wall <clears throat> was filled with windows all the way around, and we were there in the afternoon, and so light was pouring in from every angle possible. It was totally beautiful. But if I'm in that room, <clears throat> and I cup my hands to form a little pocket of darkness, <clears throat> and I clench them <laughs> fiercely, and I walk out into the middle of the room, when it's most filled with light, and then I quickly like uncut my hands and I set that pocket of darkness free, nothing changes. Literally no effect on the room <clears throat> whatsoever. Now, <clears throat> flip the scenario. If I'm in a room with no windows, connected to a hallway with no windows, and there are no screens <clears throat> or flash bulbs or flashlights or bulbs of any kind whatsoever in the room and the lights are off and the room is so dark I can't see my hand in front of my face and I'm standing dead center in the middle of the room and I light one match, I can see almost everything in the entire room, right? And Jesus is way more than a match, way more. He's the light that shines in the darkness and the darkness can't grab a hold of it, can't overcome it, can't comprehend it, can't lay a rest to it. It's not possible. <clears throat> now, here you go, you ready? Hey. This means that if you sat across the table from Jesus in his office, you would somehow feel so achingly vulnerable, but you couldn't not share and not put a governor on it. You wouldn't be able to. Why? Because he's the light of the world. But, and you, you'd have this hunch that he already knows, but also that you just got to tell him anyway. There's not a hidden nook or a darkened corner or a closed off alley of your heart where he can't shine. Like there are people that I've known for a long time that I know really well, that know me really well. And I know how they hide stuff and how they conceal stuff. And they know how I hide stuff and how I conceal stuff. And some of you, some of you are great actors and great actresses. On your first take, you might be able to fool a pastor, doctor, therapist. But isn't it so, 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 so dumb and ridiculous when we think we can do the same to Jesus? That's an Olympic-sized fool's errand, right? He's the heavenly discloser. He's the great revealer. He's the light that shines into the darkness, exposing and revealing what's really there. I think about this. This is just the powerful part of our question. This is, hey, is not necessarily personal yet. This is verses nine and 10. Jesus as the light, he discloses and reveals, but look at the last line of verse 10. Look, the world still did not know him. M meaning seeing clearly doesn't directly entail that the source of the clarity is for you. You got that? That means you could be exposed and still helpless. 
That means your issues, your thing, your stuff, it could be revealed and you could still lack intimacy. But here's the thing, that's not the case for Jesus. That's not, because there's another dominant idea in our passage. So that's the first main idea, the darkness and light idea. And the second uh, idea here in our passage, it, it becomes uh, most clear in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, <clears throat> you are welcome. I could take three hours and just talk about the word word and Greek philosophy and stuff. And the word dwelt is like to tabernacle in the midst, Old Testament. I'm not doing that. <clears throat> not doing that. So you're welcome. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Pause. Set that aside. What I'm saying is, <clears throat> with these few words at the beginning of verse 14, John gives us one of the most staggering ideas in the history of all religion and philosophy. John is saying that this eternal word light that has never not existed, this is the divine agent of all creation. He has taken to himself human form. He has dressed himself in the physicality of a broken and a corrupt world. Eternal glory clothed in the mundane, fully God, fully man. And please get this, there are zero, Adam, count them, zero religions in the history of the world whose one and only God has entered painful humanity as one of them. That does not happen anywhere. This is either asinine and a lie or it's completely true. You don't get that anywhere. There's no Eastern religion or ancient religion or modern riff on an old religion where the author of the story has written himself into the story to suffer alongside humans as a human. Only the Christian gospel is like that. Only the God of the Bible is like that. You can't get it anywhere else. This eminence and this intimacy. Now, <clears throat> here's proof. Uh, there is a philosopher at the University of Paris named Luke Ferry. And if you're over 44 years old, I did not say Luke Perry. Anybody? Thank you. Please? Thank you. Good. Love you. Well, well done. Um, and Luke Ferry has written a book called A Brief History of Thought. Excellent book. And he writes about how the claims of John chapter 1 are like a bomb that exploded in the world of ideas and changed the entire trajectory of the Western world. And Luke Ferry at the University of Paris is not a Christian. And he says these things. On John 1, 1 through 5, he says that oh, all the great philosophers and Stoics and thinkers would agree with John, the darkness and light stuff, all is well. All is well right there. <clears throat> However, when John says the word became flesh, listen to what Ferry writes. In the history of thought, this is unacceptable. The divine becoming man and for the Christian incarnated in Jesus. This means that the deity has shifted ground. It is no longer an impersonal reality beyond us, but an extraordinary individual in our midst. That's what Ferry says. And the point is, even abstract philosophical thought can feel how deeply wonderful and personal this thing is. It's not just that Jesus is the light shining in the darkness, revealing and exposing. He's also God's own life and love to us who has come to rescue us from what has been revealed and exposed. And this means that God, hey, he is not distant. He is not disinterested. He's not, he's not aloof. He's not uninvolved. He's not absent or abusive at all. 
As the old hymn says of Jesus, he is the word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. Oh, come, let us adore him because it's so personal and wonderful because he's God in our midst. And there is something here implied in verse 14 that is so, so simple and liberating for your life. So simple. We just don't don't believe it. Here it is. Because of verse 14, you ready? Please believe this. God in your life is never being withholding, ever. Jim, how do you get that from verse 14? Hey, if he's already given you himself, himself in Jesus, everything else is icing on the cake, everything. Like what else do you need? All your stuff's gonna rot and rust and burn, all of it is. In fact, look at verse 16, look. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Syntactically speaking, that is an ellipsis. So the right version of it is, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. It's infinite, and that means gift upon gift, everything that we ever, ever need. That's what we're talking about in the advent of Jesus. That's all the proof that you need that God isn't being a bully or going, hey, get straight, and I'll give you some blessings. He's not holding out on you. Our world is gonna try to convince you that a full life is about having a lot of stuff, material things, possessions, comforts. Those are the things that are gonna give you purpose and joy. Hey, hey, but look, if you live by the world's standards, follow me, if you live by the world's standards and then you lose your stuff, then you're gonna think God's being mean, but he's not. He's not. You were just so attached to the stuff that it was your functional savior. And when it's gone, you're like, come on, God. But that's not what this is teaching at all. Because Jesus is the essence of all that we need and he is our actual savior, because he's entered into our pain and our mess and our world to deliver us, not only is God not being withholding, he's being eternally generous and we still blame him. Brother, sister in Christ, this word made flesh means that God is never holding out on you. You're welcome. Also, There's like an aside uh, theological point here that we can't skip. It's not directly in our passage, but it's closely related, and it's this. Uh, That's that the incarnation implies, and forgive me, I was born and raised Baptist, it implies everything from cradle to cross to crown. It's really lovely, CR, all three, it's really nice. The incarnation implies everything from cradle to cross to crown. It encapsulates everything Jesus does with his body. So he came as a baby, lived life as an actual man, died on a cross. He rose and ascended to be with the Father in his body and will bodily return as crowned King of kings and Lord of lords. And all of this is included in the drop-down arrow beside incarnation. But there's one part of this, if we zoom in, there's one part of this that feels especially personal, and this is one of my favorite teachings in the New Testament. During Jesus' life, when he was tempted in the wilderness, it says he was tempted three times. And he overcame each temptation uh, by resisting the devil and by quoting the Bible. And John, John later writes that everything that is in the world, all that is in the world is just three things. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And for fun, those are the three ways that the fruit is described in Genesis 3, but those are also the three ways that Jesus was tempted in Matthew 4, Luke, etc. Now this is what this means. Sorry for the weird theological side. This is what this means. It means that Jesus understands the full measure of every kind of temptation you will ever face. That is a theological implication of the word became flesh. Let me draw it out just a little bit more. 
This means that the precise and sharp point of the trial that corners you, that paints you into a corner, when you go, I'm isolated, nobody understands. Even if I told somebody, they wouldn't understand. The precise point of pressure and temptation that makes you think that you are all alone. The incarnation teaches that not only does Jesus know, because he's been there, that he's for you, right? It doesn't matter the specificity of your problem or your vice or your sin. He can empathize with you because he's been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. That's what Hebrews says. Because he's faced every kind of pressure the world can throw at us. And it gets even better. He never caved to any of the temptation. But rather, he felt their full weight and full onslaught. And guess what that means? He actually understands the pressure and the temptation more than you do which means he's more trustworthy than you could ever fathom. So why are you putting your trust in stuff? Right? He's our great high priest. And you know what? <clears throat> Related is, dude, if I do botch it, if I do mess up, if I do cave to temptation, guess what? The shame that feels so personal when we do, when we do cave to pressure and temptation, he willingly clothed himself in our shame at the cross so that you could be clothed in his grace upon grace upon grace. And he loves loving you and he loves saving you. And it's a joy for him to redeem you and set you free. He took our shame and instead of shame, he gave us gift upon gift. And that is so glorious. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Now, <clears throat> Let's take one step back for a second here. A little review. Now they both can do both, but the light in darkness idea especially shows the powerful nature of the incarnation and the word made flesh idea especially shows the personal nature of the incarnation. And these two ideas, they get together and they conspire together to answer our question. So here's the big answer to our question this morning. I'll go through it slowly. The incarnation of Jesus is both powerful and personal because he knows us completely and loves us completely. And this is only possible because he is fully God and fully man. This is not like a theological abstract to memorize. This is life, brothers and sisters. There's so much life in this. One more time, really slowly. The incarnation of Jesus is both powerful and personal. Hey, in other world religions, you might get to pick one of those. You don't have to pick here. It's both powerful and personal because he knows us completely and loves us completely. Again, you don't have to choose. And all this is possible because he's the God man. He's fully God, fully man. Imagine one more time. <clears throat> You're sitting across from Jesus in his office. Regardless of your struggle or your thing, regardless of your story or your past, if you sat down with him, you would somehow feel so willing and vulnerability would just launch out of you so willing that you would tell him everything because he's the light shining in darkness. But also, you would feel so confident in his love for you because he is the word made flesh and his grace upon grace upon grace upon grace to you calls you out of darkness, calls you out of shame, calls you out of the shadows. And there is a really lovely, mysterious freedom here in being totally understood and totally cared for. And it's mysterious because the only place you can find it is in the one who is fully God and fully man, Jesus of Nazareth. You can only find this personal, powerful kindness in the author who has written himself into the story. And John even says it. Dude, this is one of my favorite lines in the whole Bible. The word became flesh 
and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glorious of the only, Father, uh, only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. <clears throat> Read it. Not 50% grace, 50% truth. 100% grace, 100% truth. Jesus is 100% kindness, mercy, love, compassion. And at the same time, he is 100% truth, justice, rightness, holiness. You don't have to pick. And the mind-blowing thing here is not merely that this combination exists. It shouldn't exist, but that it exists in a person who is both all the way God and all the way man, the divine person Jesus, and that should leave us all kinds of baffled. So, like how in the world do we respond to this, this gospel that is both powerful and personal? Well, I love so far that we haven't said anything that we need to do. We're just meditating on Jesus and how great he is, right? I love that I'm not rolling out some big to-do list for you. However, if this is true, I believe it elicits a response from deep within us. Now, our two big ideas mainly come from verses one through five and verses 14 through 18. However, our primary response comes from those, uh, 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 that section in between those verses in between, uh, verses six through 13. So look at verse seven, look down at verse seven. John the Baptist, he came as a witness about the light that all might believe through him. Now I'll go down to verse 12, verse 12. Uh, this is about Jesus, verse 12 is. <clears throat> but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to be children of God. So both of these lines, verse 7, verse 12, <clears throat> call us to believe, or the noun is to have faith. So what does this mean? This is our response. Well, <clears throat> first off, this is a word of trust. This believing is a word of trust. <clears throat> like, you understand what John 1 is claiming here, theologically, theoretically, you get it, that Jesus is the God-man, that he knows completely, loves completely. Like, in theory, you're like, yes, Jim, yes. However, you ready? You've never experienced that both and from another person, and so you're hesitant to believe that it's true of Jesus. I don't know how many of you, this is your story, but j just follow me here for a second. We're prone to think that people either know us and because of that don't love us, or that people love us because they don't truly know us. I'm not saying you live there, I'm saying you've been there. And it's often just too much for us to fathom that both can be true at the same time, especially from one person. Maybe I get my knowing here and my love. One person. And this believing in verses seven and 12 <clears throat> includes relying on Jesus, trusting him that he's good to his word, that he's good for both of these, that he knows, knows us completely and loves us completely. And dude, it is definitely a stretch for your soul, definitely, but it is off, all the time worth it, all the time, beyond worth it. Now furthermore, <clears throat> this believing <clears throat> is also a word of allegiance. It's a word of allegiance. So if you look down in verse <clears throat> 17, we've got Moses right there, law given through Moses. Rather than allegiance to the letter of the law or allegiance to Rome, who's in the background of this whole gospel, or allegiance to a political party, rather than allegiance to your thing, your alcohol or pills or money or the illusion of control, Jesus is inviting you into allegiance to himself. And here's the difference. This is a relationship. Jesus is not a thing. He's not an idea. He's not a circumstance. He is a person. 
He's inviting you to loyalty and commitment to him. And this believing, trusting allegiance to the eternal word is the only way to have eternal life. You, you've tried it, I've tried it, we've tried it. Like, we know that substances, possessions, and politics do not lead to eternal life. And verse 13 says that humans can't work and will our way to the good life on our own. Only in and through Jesus is this real life found. And all he asks of us is to believe. And you know what, dude? I'm, I, I think having good pastors and doctors and therapists is great. You should do that. Uh, but we are still finite, okay? That's a problem that Jesus does not share. Jesus, on the other hand, he is the eternal good shepherd and great physician and wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God and the Prince of Peace and the Word made flesh, and we have seen his glory full of grace and truth. And he didn't just come from heaven to earth to set a great example. He came to overthrow the darkness of death. And guess what that means? That means that at the cross, death and sin and shame are seen for all of their ugliness. And at the very same time at the cross, we see the most beautiful picture ever of self-giving love, that he would give his life for ours, that he would take to himself the separation from God that we deserve and then rise victorious over the grave. And in doing so, there is now an unemptiable reservoir of grace upon grace. There is an ever-flowing fountain of gift upon gift in him. And now, for people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and language, the cross and resurrection are so powerful and so personal to so many that this message can make you a child of God if you believe in his name. Verse 12. And, and just like God said, let there be light to unfold the first creation, Jesus is now the let there be light of the new creation. Through Jesus, God is remaking his people and his world. He is making Eden blossom in the middle of exile. He is reuniting heaven and earth. And none of this is close to possible except through the incarnation. The word became flesh from cradle to cross to crown. Jesus is the God-man come to rescue us, and he is making all things new. So, Fellowship Greenville, I've got good news for you. I've got good news of great joy for all the people. A Savior has been born, and he knows you utterly and loves you the exact same. And there's so much sweetness in believing that. Let's pray together. Jesus, we stand before you today very, very humbled. We stand before you just bursting with gratitude. And would, would you make our gratitude today, Jesus, would you make it yield faith and trust and dependence upon you? Please, please, please. And would you make it lead to worship and adoration and delight? Please, Jesus, let that be true. Father, Son, and Spirit, we thank you so, so much for what we have in the gospel message of Jesus, incarnate, crucified, resurrected, and returning. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the light and the darkness and the word made flesh. We love you. You're the best. Amen.